at age 13 was when this uh, tragic accident happened that caused my dad to die. You know, we were at home, uh, me and my little sister, my two little brothers. My two little brothers were age two, three, and five um, when this happened. And my dad was just kind of playing, you know, hide and seek and, you know, chasing me and my sister around. We were having a little tickle wars, having a good old time. And it was a Saturday, and my dad had been uh, drinking. He usually put down a six to a 12 back, uh, you know, on the weekends when he was off from work. And so he was buzzed, and he started tickling me a little too hard. And I noticed. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's, he tickles too hard when he's been drinking a bit. You know, he doesn't realize how hard he's tickling. So I'm like, oh, you know, next time I got free from him, I'm like, I'm going to run away from this guy. So, you know, I ran out of the bedroom, the master bedroom down our hallway and out um, through the dining room onto our balcony. We had a big balcony on the back of our house. It's shaped like a big rectangle. And I ran down the balcony. You know, my dad's chasing after me. And I'm like, ha, 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 you're not going to catch me. And I ran all the way down the balcony and back in the other sliding glass doors back into the master bedroom. You know, I just did a full lap around the top of our house. And my dad did not quite make that right turn, you know, because he's 5'8", 250 pounds. He's a pretty big, you know, guy, overweight. And he tripped and, you know, he, he ended up, you know, going head first, landing head first on our driveway below a two-story balcony, um, and it was really bad. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a long-time methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast if you want transparency and authenticity you're in the right place this is the nowhere to go but up podcast and this is sean dustin What's up, everybody? Thanks for stopping by the show. This is Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I am your host, Sean Dustin. So a couple of announcements. Uh, If you're watching this on YouTube, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button and thumbs up this video. Uh, That would definitely help out. Uh, If you're on Facebook, what you can do for me is hit that like and go ahead and share this. I got a really good episode for you uh, this evening. Another thing, too, is all the ways that you can support this show, whether it is you want to follow me on my social media, you want to pick up some merchandise, you want to uh, check out some of the old, old uh, not old, but um, shows that I've been a guest on there. Those are there in the link tree as well. Uh, all the social media, like I said, and in all the ways to support the show, whether it's Patreon, Venmo, uh, Cash App. All that stuff is available, and a lot of it's available in the description here uh, below, so you can check that out as well. Um, Today, I have Tim Davis, and he is a recovering addict alcoholic. Uh, His bio is in the description below. Uh, He's got a pretty good story, and he's been through a lot and actually accomplished a lot since becoming sober. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing this, uh, this story. So let's go ahead and bring Tim in, Tim on in here. Hey, hey, Sean. Tim, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for reaching out and wanting to connect with the show and tell your story uh, from, from your, your bio. I can't wait to, to hear it. <laughs> hey, well, thanks for having me. So, yeah, so, why don't, yeah, so why don't you go ahead and uh, start and let everybody know about you, uh, tell a little bit about your story, where you came from, and how you got to be where you are right now. All right. Um, I don't know how much time I have for that, <laughs> but uh, I'll start. And if I'm going too long, uh, you know, let me know and I'll, I can shorten up and abbreviate as necessary. Uh, so again, uh, my name's Tim Davis. I go by Ultra Tim Davis uh, now in sobriety because I've I got into um, doing triathlons and Ironman triathlons and ultra racing um, in my sobriety. Um, but uh, before we start there, I um, I was born in Georgia, um, Atlanta, Georgia. Moved when I was three. I'm the third oldest of seven children. A big Catholic family. We moved around a lot. Um, ended up settling um, in West Virginia, about an hour south of Pittsburgh, right in the northern part of West Virginia. And uh, grew up, did most of my growing up there. Um, 
And in, in my family, like, you know, my parents worked hard and, and, and they, they, uh, disciplined us with a, a firm, uh, belt and a firm, uh, my mom with her, her Lester Maddox hickory stick, which is basically a baseball bat. Um, so they kept us in line cause they had seven of us. Um, and it was a different generation, 46 years old. Um, and, uh, anyway, growing up, you know, my sister was the oldest and then my, my older brother was four years older than me and my older brother, um, you know, he just, uh, was always defiant, rebellious, um, thrill seeker, um, uh, definitely had a, you know, an, an addictive personality, I guess, uh, or, you know, characteristics of alcoholics and addicts, uh, but you know, he, he doesn't classify himself as such. Um, uh, but anyway, he started getting into all kinds of trouble at a very early age. And, you know, he was such a good loving brother that he let me just, uh, follow right along with him. Cause I was the next oldest. I was four years younger than him. So when he was at junior high school experimenting with alcohol and marijuana, you know, he just let little brother Timmy tag along. So I was eight, nine years old when I was, uh, you know, taking my first drink and smoking my first, uh, you know, bowl, him and his friends in their shop class, they, they made these wooden bowls and then they would either steal screens out of, you know, the faucets from their parents' house or our parents' house, or they just take tinfoil and put it in the bowl and take a safety pin and poke a bunch of holes in it. And we'd smoke the, you know, this, mar- you know, marijuana in there. Um, and I was doing that at eight, nine years old, um, which is way too young to be doing that, which, but I had no clue at the time. Uh, I have three kids now. Um, they are 21, 19 and just turned nine. And I remember when my oldest turned eight, I was like, oh, my God, I was this age doing that. I was just like crazy stuff. Uh, so anyway, um, I dabbled with that quite a bit. You know, I really liked the way it made me feel. Um, you know, I was always an anxious little kid, kind of just self-conscious, worried about what others thought about me. Felt like I never fit in. Uh, so when I, you know, I drank that, you know, some beer or some other alcohol or smoked some weed, you know, it just uh, relaxed me, made me feel like I fit in. Um uh, you know, loosen my social inhibitions. And I just, I didn't feel like I was apart from, I felt like I was a part of once I had a drink or a drug in me. And, uh, you know, like I, I fit into the crowd, you know, and I, especially as a kid, you worry about that stuff a lot. I don't worry about that stuff so much now that I'm older. Um, anyway, um, at age 13, um, was when this uh, tragic accident happened that caused my dad to die. Um, you know, we were at home, uh, me and my little sister, and my two little brothers, my two little brothers were age two, three, and five, um, when this happened. And my dad was just kind of playing, you know, hide and seek and, you know, chasing me and my sister around. We were having a little tickle wars, having a good old time. And it was a Saturday and my dad had been uh, drinking. He usually put down a six to a 12 back, uh, you know, on the weekends when he was off from work. Um, and so he was buzzed and he started tickling me a little too hard. And I noticed, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's, he tickles too hard when he's been drinking a bit. You know, he doesn't realize how hard he's tickling. So I'm like, oh, you know, next time I got free from him, I'm like, I'm going to run away from this guy. So, you know, I ran out of the bedroom, the master bedroom, down our hallway and out um, through the dining room onto our balcony. We had a big balcony on the back of our house. It's shaped like a big rectangle. And I ran down the balcony. You know, my dad's chasing after me. And I'm like, ha, 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 you're not going to catch me. And I ran all the way down the balcony and back in the other sliding glass doors back into the master bedroom. You know, I just did a full lap around the top of our house. And my dad did not quite make that right turn, you know, because he's 5'8", 250 pounds. He's a pretty big, you know, guy, overweight. Um, and he tripped and, you know, he, he ended up, you know, going head first, landing head first on our driveway below a two-story balcony. Um, and it was really bad. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I was like almost halfway down the stairs and I heard my sister scream and my little brother scream. And I was just like, whoa, you know, I just kind of knew something wasn't right. So I would, I kept going, you know, ran outside and there he was just laying on our driveway in a slump. His neck was swollen up to like here and he had a gash or his forehead to the back of his, the base of his head. You know, just blood was everywhere. It was not good. He was just, you know, barely con. He wasn't even conscious. He was just like laying there lethargic, but you know. So I yelled to our neighbor, you know, right beside us, you know, help, call 911. And he came over. Our neighbor was a really nice guy. He helped us out. You know, the ambulance came. Um, my mom went off in the ambulance and then she just told me and my little sister, you know, to get my brothers ready for bed. Cause it was, you know, it was after dinner. It was, you know, summer evening it was in August. And, uh, so, uh, you know, me and my sister were freaked out, but we got, we got my two little brothers to bed and we eventually, you know, we cried a lot, but we eventually calmed down and I finally fell asleep. And then around two or three in the morning, I got um, rudely awakened by my older brother who came home from the hospital. Um, he and my older sister were both at their McDonald's job. They were working on the Saturday night. And so they got called by my mom and they went to the hospital. Anyway, he proceeded to give me one of the worst beatings, actually probably the worst beating I've ever had in my life for about almost two hours. Um, just pounding on my chest, kicking me in my legs, everywhere but my face. He never hit me in the face because, you know, then 
mom or dad would know that he was beating on me. But, uh, you know, he bruised some of my ribs. He almost put me in the hospital that night. And he was just yelling, you know, it's your effing fault. I don't know if we can cuss on this podcast or not. Um, you know, yeah, but all okay. kinds of experts. Oh, yeah. He's like, it's your fucking fault. You know, dad's going to fucking die because of you, you know, and me and dad were just finally starting to get along after all those years of, you know, whatever. He was a senior in high school when this happened. And, uh, and, uh, you know, he's like, it's your fault. Dad's going to die, you know, and blah, 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 blah. You know, and my dad was brain dead. Um, and, uh, you know, he ended up being in a coma for about eight months before he expired. Um, and those were tough eight months. Um, Cause the whole time I'm like hoping, um, you know, my only experience about comas was from my sister controlled the TV after school. And we watched this soap opera where this guy was in a coma, but then four years later he woke up. So I'm like, Oh, comas like when you wake up from comas, that's what happened on the TV show. <laughs> and, uh, that's not what happened with my dad. Uh, you know, so then it really was my fault at age 13, you know, it's my fault. My dad died. You know, I just, I, you know, my brother beat me up and told me it was my fault. And I just carried that with me for a long time. And that's, uh, you know, after going to several rehabs, um, and th- lots of therapy, you know, they, they ask you to do reflection in your 12 step work. And, you know, they asked me, you know, they always ask, can you pinpoint um, a time and you're drinking and using when uh, like you kind of cross that line or when you started to drink and use drugs to escape from pain and negative feelings? And mine definitely started with, the, you know, my dad's death and being blamed for it. I can definitely that's easy to pinpoint for me, um, you know. And so, you know, from that point on through high school, you know, I, I sought to drink and get high whenever I could. In college, it was pretty much a daily thing. And after college, it was getting so out of control. Um it was only a few more years later before I ended up in rehab uh, when my wife was pregnant with our first son. Wow. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, you want me to keep going? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we, I mean, you can go as long as you want. Yeah, yeah. No time, yeah, yeah. no time limit, no time frame. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, you know, um, through high school, you know, my mom had this rule. She didn't let us play sports until we were in high school. And so once I got to high school, you know, uh, I don't know if you read the big book, but in AA, they say one way we try to, you know, control and drink our control and enjoy our our drinking and using is to take up bouts of rigorous physical exercise. You know, so I would get all serious about football and basketball and track. And uh, I really wouldn't drink or use too much during the season. But, you know, in between season and definitely in the summer, I I partied a little more, you know, in the holidays. Um, Then, you know, because I had this dream of becoming some pro athlete, um, you know, but by my senior year, um, Let's see. I actually, um, we tra- I transferred schools and I wasn't eligible eligible to play football and basketball my senior year. And so my senior year was like, well, you know, if I'm not even going to go play my senior year, then obviously, you know, I wasn't even getting scouted as a freshman, sophomore, junior anyway. So the, the college dreams are over. So it's game one. I just started drinking and using more because, you know, I, what was the point? I'm like, you know. Uh, but then when I got to college, you know, I, it was, you know, college was kind of like my first geographic, if you guys are familiar with that is. Um, uh, for I've had, I've had not, many of them. Yeah. For anybody who might not be familiar with it, in case you have listeners around, it's like, you know, for alcoholics and addicts, we, when we pull a ge- geographic, it means we move away from wherever we're at because we think if we just move somewhere else, everything will get better and our problems will go away or we'll get sober or whatever it is, you know. But uh, bad news is wherever you move to, your problems come with you because <laughs> nope. your problems are in your head and uh, you can't really get away from them unless you do therapy or 12-step work or something, you know, that, to work on your kind of spiritual growth and, you know, meditation, prayer. Uh, you know, for me, it's a lot of 12-step work and some meditation and exercise uh, now. Um, yeah, so they anyway, say college, just just break in. They say uh, I got this from the uh, from the rooms as well and outside. But wherever you go, there you are. You're never going. <laughs> you never escape you, no matter where you go. That is for sure. Um, yeah, it, it, needless to say, my geographic in college lasted three days <laughs> before one of the one of my doormates came in with this stuff called. This was 1992. He came in with this really wonderful smelling marijuana, which we did not have in West Virginia back in when I was in high school. And he's like, "What's that stuff?" And he's like, "This is the Chronic." <laughs> and I, you know, the Chronic album had just dropped like that year or the year before, you know. And it's like, you know, we're bumping, you know. Uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop and all those guys and just smoking this stuff. And I was like, wow, we did never have weed like this where I was at. It was just a bunch of homegrown stuff in West Virginia at the time. I'm sure they probably have the good stuff now. It's just, I, that's what it, what I was able to access <laughs> was basically some homegrown cheap stuff or, or the equivalent of, uh, some of the Mexican weed I've smoked out here. Cause I've lived in Los Angeles for 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all different kinds of weed here. Um, and when I was using marijuana, that was wonderful. <laughs> but but I'm 13 and a half years sober now, and I, I don't do that anymore. I know when they first made marijuana legal, 
I was like, man, this might be a little difficult because that was definitely my drug of choice to talk about having a drug of choice. Marijuana was always my go-to. Um, I mean, I like to drink, but my first choice was always marijuana because it calmed me down. It, you know, it kind of made my anxiety go away. It just made me feel normal. It uh, never gave me paranoia like some people get or anything. It just, uh, I, you know, I found out I was self-medicating with it. <laughs> so uh, all through college, I just, you know, somehow I always got my homework done first, managed to graduate with like a 3.3. Um, but as soon as I finished, you know, the test or whatever, the, the paper or whatever, I went to go party. And I just, college was a blur. I barely remember it. Um, I think the most important thing that happened to me in college was that I met my wife-to-be, who uh, oh, um, we lived in the same dorm, on the same floor in the same dorm our freshman year. And we became really good friends for a long time. We started dating at the end of the year. And uh, we moved in together our sophomore year which turned out to be a mistake because <laughs> uh, she uh, did not like, I mean, she would drink and smoke weed on the weekends and here and there as a college student. Um, but, uh, you know, she definitely saw early on that I did it um, way more than she thought somebody should do it. Uh, so uh, anyway, we ended up breaking up um, for part of our junior year and living in separate places. And we ended up giving back our senior year. Um, I begged her back. Um, and then right after college, we moved in together. Um, and then she bought me the addiction workbook <laughs> and uh, I did a few pages in there and thought, nah, this ain't for me. Um, I kind of always had this mentality and I always told her that I'll quit when I have like in, in my book, there's like this whole chapter where I talk about the I'll quit wins, you know, and then when we were in college, I told her I'd quit when we graduate because, you know, we'll have to get real jobs and have to grow up and be big boys and girls, you know, or real adults or whatever. Um, but that didn't take, <laughs> And so then after college, you know, we both got jobs. At first, I worked at USC for a little while, um, but then I, I became a teacher. I followed in her footsteps. She was a high school teacher, and I became a high school teacher. Um, well, actually, I was a mi middle school teacher for a few years before I became a high school teacher. Uh, but anyway, we got our careers, and, uh, you know, and I, you know, once we got our careers, I was still – I learned as a school teacher, it's not good to drink on school nights because going into a middle school classroom with a hangover sucks major you-know-what. Yeah. <laughs> it imagine. is the worst. So on school nights, I would just smoke my weed. And on the weekends is when I would binge drink and maybe do other hardcore drugs because uh, that was yet to become a part of my story, but it did become a part of my story uh, soon soon after college. And then, uh, you know, let's see what I was saying. So I didn't quit when we got our jobs. Oh, and then I told her I'd quit when we get married. Um, and uh, I didn't do that. And then I told her I'd quit when she gets pregnant because, you know, when she gets pregnant, you know, she wouldn't be allowed to have a glass of wine or whatever. Or she occasionally smokes a little weed. So I'm going to support her and do the same thing. Well, then she got pregnant a couple of years after college. We were like 24, a couple of years out of college, been married about a year or two. And, uh, you know, I had this revelation. I'm like, wait, I'm not the one carrying the baby. So this, if I still drink or use, it's not going to hurt our child. You know, that's, that's growing inside her womb. So uh, needless to say, I was, you know, and I, at this point, my drinking and using was really progressing. You know, it's just like really binging on the weekends and smoking weed every night as soon as I got home from work. Uh, it was bad. And uh, smoking a lot of cigarettes, too. And, uh, you know, it got so bad that um, towards the end of the pregnancy, she didn't think that I would be sober enough to drive her to the hospital when her water broke. And uh, that's when uh, she said, you need to go to a 12-step meeting or something, because we had been in couples therapy for a little bit. And uh, pretty much our couples therapy sessions went like this. Um, she bitched about how much I drink and use, and she processed all her stuff. And then, you know, the therapist, you know, asked me to speak, and I maybe shared about whatever was going on with me. But then the therapist, after my turn, always suggested, she's like, you really should go to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, or one of the 12-step fellowships. <laughs> that was always the suggestion. Um, so I finally agreed to go to a, uh, a narcotics anonymous meeting because when I first was trying to get sober, I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol. I just had a problem with drugs. Um, I thought I could quit alcohol whenever I wanted. I didn't realize that alcohol was a drug too yet, um, as they say in the NA rooms. Uh, and uh, so we went to this meeting in Hollywood. And uh, I, I, this for anybody who's not familiar with 12 Steps or is trying to get sober, um, there's a saying in the rooms that when you go to meetings, look for the similarity and not the differences. And I did not know this. And as someone new to all this, I was doing the exact opposite. I was looking for the differences and not the similarities. And the main speaker at this meeting was a guy who was in a wheelchair because he jumped off a bridge, tried to commit suicide, and he survived. But he was like permanently in a wheelchair and he was all messed up. Uh, he was almost quadriplegic. I mean, because I remember he could barely move one arm and his speech was uh, affected. And I'm like, well, that's not me. I never tried to commit suicide. 
little did I know a few years later, I would, you know, threaten to commit suicide and be thrown in a suicide tank for a week. Um, but, but that's a few years, a couple years later after that. So anyway, I went to that meeting and, you know, I was like, well, you know, this is, I don't, I don't have this kind of problem. Um, and I managed to white knuckle it and stay sober long enough to get her to the hospital. And then, um, you know, the baby was born. We were there at the hospital for a couple of days. We came home. And as soon as we came home, I pretty much just ditched her ass. I did the worst thing you could do as a new father. And I disappeared for three days and went and got drunk and high with my two little brothers who were still in high school at the time. They were like eight, 10 and 11 years younger than me. And, uh, I was celebrating being a father and I was being a shitty father. <laughs> I, I shouldn't laugh, but <laughs> we're not a glum lot. We laugh at our tragedy. I can, in hindsight, it's, it's like, what the fuck was I doing? Um, you know, and, and, you know, needless to say, she was pissed when I, when I came back, I mean, she called and I finally came back. Uh, you know, we were living with our parents at the time. Cause when we, uh, when we first got pregnant with, with my oldest son, Julian, uh, we kind of made a deal that we'd live with our parents for a couple of years so we could save all our money to buy our own house. So they let us stay there for a couple of years and we basically just paid for groceries and kind of, you know, did the cooking and cleaning, but they let us save all our paychecks towards buying a house, which we did. Um, two years later, we moved into another house and, uh, during those two years after Julian was born, um, I started going to more meetings, um, cause you know, she basically said, if you don't get sober now, we're going to get divorced. Um, and it's just going to be, you know, it's the whole, you know, this is going to be over this. I can't have you like this. Um, so I started going to meetings and I got sober for maybe like four or five months. And then I had that thought, like maybe I could, you know, just uh, have one. And, uh, that, you know, if you're an alcoholic and an addict, you can never have just one. Uh, we have another saying, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And, uh, it took me a long time to learn that. Um, it's basically from 1999 to 2004, um, those five years um, in the book, uh, the chapter about those, those years, I called the wonder years because my drinking and drugging got so bad that people wondered whether I was going to live or die. Um, I started doing cocaine and started doing methamphetamine, you know, after the next couple relapses. Um, at age 27 um, was when um, I, th I think I was coming out of my third rehab um, after another relapse and um like my insurance ran out. I was in a place for, um, let's see, like a couple weeks, but then my insurance ran out and my wife didn't want me to move back home. And I didn't, you know, surrender to the fact that I needed to go to sober living. Uh, so my wife's parents let me stay there temporarily. And the first night I was at their house, you know, I had had insomnia the entire two weeks that I was in uh, that rehab. And I, you know, before I got in that rehab, I'd, I'd been doing methamphetamine for, you know, a good six months to maybe a year on and off and mostly on. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what was wrong with me because I'm like, I'm not doing meth anymore. Why can't I sleep now? You know, because when I was doing meth, I wasn't sleeping much, obviously. Um, yeah. The one thing about methamphetamine use and when you go to uh, quit meth is, first of all, you sleep for about a week and you start to get normal. And then, like, I didn't. I didn't get normal and have start and start having normal brain function and, and, and not be emotional or like watch a Hallmark commercial and feel like crying or my, my emotions were up and down and up and down. And it took two years for me to finally start to the fog to clear and me to start feeling like I, I was normal. Yeah, that's what they say. I mean, I didn't know this at the time. I just uh, was going out of my mind. I was suffering from racing thoughts. And uh, that same night that I was supposed to be staying at her parents' house, I started, you know, trying to journal, you know, like they taught me to do it, you know, in the rehab sessions. Um, and uh, my journal ended up turning into a six-page suicide letter. Um, and I just wow. basically, I mean, it, it, every other word was the F word. It was like, fuck this, you know, I can't stand this fucking life. I, I don't know how to fucking stay sober. I don't know how to not stay fucking sober. Um, you know, I, you know, and I was just basically like the moral of the whole letter was like, the world's going to be better off without me. Cause I don't know how to live life sober and I don't know how to live life not sober. So, you know, screw this, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. And my plan was to go jump in front of a train. And so I left that letter in the bedroom, you know, the guest bedroom at her parents' house. And before I did that, I made a cry for help. And I called my wife and I called my mom and I told her my plan. And then I drove over to the train tracks and, uh, you know, I started smoking a cigarette and was walking along the train tracks. I wasn't actually walking on the tracks. I was like 20 or 30 feet away from them. But, you know, I was like, you know, kind of just contemplating, you know, whether I wanted to jump from this train or not. But luckily, uh, my mom and my wife or my wife and my mom called the authorities and they came and swooped me up. 
and uh, threw me in the suicide tank at LA County Hospital. I was there for 24 hours, and then they transferred me back to the one in Pasadena that I've been, you know, the rehab there, but the dual diagnosis unit. So I was in a 5150 for a, a week. They gave me back to back 72 hour holds, which I was very resentful about after the first 72 hours. Because if you've never been in a suicide tank, it's a very humbling um, experience. You know, I, I just didn't know what was going on. Like, first thing they do is they take your shoelaces and your belt. And I'm just like, why are they taking my shoelaces and my belt? And, you know, I'm like, oh, they think I might try and strangle myself with that. And I'm like, but I'm not going to really do that. You know, why are you taking my shoestrings and my belt? <laughs> you know? So they do. And then, like, you know, they just, you know, it's just crazy. It's very humbling. And uh, I'm sitting in the the one in the L.A. County and even the other one. And uh, they're Everybody in there seemed like they were out of their mind to me. I felt like I was the only normal one in there. I, 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 I even in the book I refer to me as I felt like I was Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I was just taking it, you know. <laughs> um, but it turns out, you know, I was, um, you know, suffering from a. Uh, I was I was in a manic phase. Um, that, after that happened, I got diagnosed with a bipolar disorder, uh, and then I was. Um, it took me a few more years to really accept and come to terms with that bipolar diagnosis. You know, they put me on different meds that some of them had, you know, some negative side effects. Uh, one of them gave me the shakes. I was only there for a few weeks. Uh, a couple other ones caused weight gain. Um, and then the ones that started working, you know, I started feeling good. And then I think, oh, I'm cured, you know. And then I would make the stupid decision to go off my medications again. And, you know, that would last for a little while while the medications were still kind of working their half-life or whatever, you know, because some of these medications can keep kind of doing their thing with your hormones or whatever, your neurotransmitters for three to six months after you stop taking them. But eventually they stop doing what they're supposed to do to stabilize your mood and stuff. And uh, and and every time that happened, I would just go right back to using drugs and alcohol. I'd relapse. So, so my message to anybody who might, who anybody else out there who might be a dual diagnosis, you know, you're not just an alcoholic and addict, but you also have you know, some sort of mood disorder, depression, anxiety, bipolar, or other things. Uh, you know, stay on the meds they give you unless they're really giving you negative side effects. Because you know, for me, every time I went off my of meds, I ended up relapsing. So uh, you know, and uh, don't don't be your own doctor unless you actually have a medical degree. And even if you have a medical medical degree, <laughs> still <laughs> see another doctor if you're having your own health problem. You know, listen to the professionals. They've been to school for you know how, who knows how many years. They're the experts. Uh, and I made the big mistake to play my own doctor for far too long. It almost killed me. Um, but anyway, I finally got sober at age, um, well, I got sober at age 29, right before I turned 30 and I stayed sober for three years. And that's kind of where I really built the foundation in the, uh, or no, wait, I, I started building a foundation in the program. Um, I obviously didn't do a good enough fourth and fifth step, but I, I did do one. Uh, you know, I went through most of the 12 steps during that three years. Um, but then a few months after I took my three year chip, um, I made the decision to go off my meds one more time. And I had, uh, you know, another relapse that only lasted a couple months. Um, and I kicked my butt real quick. And uh, <laughs> I remember the last rehab I went into, um, uh, it was right before I turned 33. I was in there for two weeks. And the second, second night I was in there, I got a roommate that checked in with me. And he had, like, literally an ounce of cocaine delivered to his room. <laughs> and I'm in rehab, you know, two days sober, thinking, wow. I haven't done cocaine in a you know, while, and that looks really good. So uh, needless to say, you know, he let me, you know, imbibe and do the cocaine with him. And, and, I, and I proceeded to just be like getting pretty much high almost constantly, you know, except for, you know, I'd, I'd show up to the sessions and participate and pretend like I was sober. But, you know, it was just like I was in that rehab for almost two weeks. And then I was like, I got to get the fuck out of this rehab if I'm going to get sober. <laughs> so I went and told, <laughs> I, I went and told the, you know, the head doctor at the time, Dr. Drew Pensky, the famous Dr. Drew Pensky used to be on the Loveline shows. I don't know if he's still doing those Loveline shows, but, you know, they were he was even televised for a while. But it's a big you know radio show out here in L.A. Um, he was one of the doctors. And I told him and the other doctor, I'm like, man, I got to get out of here to get sober. They're like, what's going on? I'm like, well, I'm not going to rat anybody else out, but you no, know, this is what I've been doing. And I'm not the only one, but I'm not going to tell you that you, you know, figure that on your own or they got to be honest. You know, this whole thing's about getting honest and I'm being honest with you saying, if I stay here, I'm not going to get sober because there's too many other people doing, you know, getting high and loaded in here. I need to get out of here. So they let me check out, but they still listed it as a, against medical advice. And I checked out and I went um, to this park up near JPL and I drank my last four beers, Pacifico beers. Um, and I smoked the rest of what weed I had. And then uh, I had this glass pipe and I, you know, threw it on the ground and I stomped on it and I had a little tiny bit of little shake weed. I threw it on there and then I pissed all over it because I knew I wasn't going to try and smoke that stuff once it was broken glass and piss all over it. Right. <laughs> and I, 
And they say, you know, if you don't remember your last drug or, you know, drink or drug, then you're not done. So I make sure that I remember my last drink and drug with those four beers and that little bit of weed that I, you know, and that broken pipe, you know, that pipe that I broke and peed all over. And that was my 33rd birthday, June 14th, 2007. So my sobriety date is June 15th, 2007. And I've got, you know, a little over 13 and a half years now. And uh, these 13 and a half years have been like, um, like they say, you know, if you, you start working the steps and the promises come true and you, you end up living a life beyond your wildest, wildest dreams. Because when I first got sober, all I wanted to do was learn how to live life sober. <laughs> I was like, God, just please help me not relapse again. Just, just help me, you know, not forget how bad it gets every time I pick up a drink or drug. You know, that's the simple little prayer I still say every day, I, every day in the morning and, you know, and at night before I go to bed, it's like, God, please don't let me forget how bad it can get. That's that's the whole prayer. God, please don't let me forget how bad it can get. And I've been saying that for 13 and a half years. Um, so I ended up getting sober, um, had a great sponsor, um, worked all the steps uh, pretty much in the first year. And, you know, I've, I've worked all the steps several times since then. Um, and But I also um, was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and eating whatever I wanted at the meetings. Um, so I ended up gaining about 60 pounds in my first year of sobriety. And he, at a year and a half sober, I stepped on the scale. I remember it was December 31st, 2008, and the numbers read 250, 250. And I'm only 5'8", 5'9", at best, you know, on a good day with my shoes on. <laughs> and I, I was like, man, at this rate, you know, that rounds up to 300, you know, because as I was a math and science teacher, now I'm a science teacher, and I'm into numbers. And I'm like, I don't want to go that way. So I made a New Year's resolution, and I hate New Year's resolutions, but I made the simple resolution that I'm going to stop eating seconds, you know, because that was my big thing. I was the portion sizes. I was eating seconds and thirds. At the dinner table, I was always finishing my wife's plate and my kids' plates, so I stopped finishing their plates. No more seconds or thirds. That was the first thing. And second thing was that I'm going to start exercising every day for at least a half hour to an hour. And the third thing was I was not allowed to watch TV or play video games um, until I did my exercise, so... If I didn't do my exercise, then I couldn't Netflix and chill or whatever. I mean, just watch Netflix, not the whatever other meeting that might have. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there because yeah. I want to I want to get to at some questions that I have about the first part yeah. of that, and then then I want to get to your the the other part where you became a triathlete and Ironman uh, contestant and all these other things that like I'm really curious about the running part of it because I hate running. Um, so one of the things is, is that, uh, before you, like when you got diagnosed, uh, bipolar, when you got your diagnosis, could you see when you look back on it, when you found out what the mania was and all of those, the up times and the down times, could you pinpoint some of those from your past? Like, we're, we're, Oh, I get it. That's what, you know what I mean? When you started connecting the dots, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can pinpoint now. No, I didn't know what it was when I was a kid. I, I just knew that I always was always kind of nervous and like, I just felt like I didn't fit in. I didn't realize that that was anxiety. Like, I'd basically been suffering from anxiety since like, I think since I started going to school in kindergarten, once I had to be around a bunch of other kids, you know, because <laughs> when you think about school, <laughs> you're surrounded by all these other kids. And I was one of the smaller kids. So I got bullied, you know, except for when my older brother's around because he was mean and nobody messed with him. But when he wasn't around, you know, <laughs> I could get bullied by other kids. Um, so, uh, um, I definitely pinpoint the anxiety you know, ever since I was young. Um, and, uh, I always talk fast. I still talk fast. I try to slow down. <laughs> um, so the racing thoughts and the thinking were there. Um, and I think the other symptoms, you know, the depression kind of got exasperated by, my, by me not being able to get sober. I mean, obviously I was depressed after my dad died. I mean, um, yeah. and yeah, some of the other symptoms popped up more as an adult though. Okay. Um, and then another thing I have is, how did you forgive yourself? I mean, cause that's pretty, that's a, that's a pretty harsh deal, man. When, when you're carrying that around and I, I wouldn't think that, that, uh, uh, Karen Padilla says you're an inspiration, Tim. Thanks, Karen. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know what I mean? I thinking about it now, when I, when you told the story, it was just, to me, that was just an accident. You know what I mean? And, it, you know, it's kind of a bad, bad situation, uh, that, that turned worse. But I mean, I, I can't imagine having to live with that. 
So how did, how did you end up forgiving yourself for that and be able to move on in your life to where that didn't affect you anymore? Because the gateway drug that we all know is trauma. And for you, that seems like that was the first traumatic event in your life that actually, you know, caused you, uh, to spiral down, um, you know, subconsciously probably in your later years. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also suffered a lot of uh, abuse from my older brother. Um, he has a very violent tendency. Um, he still has a lot of rage and anger. And, um, you know, when my dad was uh, around, you know, if he caught my brother beating on me, he would whoop my brother. But when my dad died, I lost my protector. Um, oh. And my older brother just assumed he was the man of the house. And uh, I didn't have anybody to protect me anymore. And I mean, it could be like little stuff. Like if we were playing video games and I was beating him, he would beat me up. And I, then if we were playing video games, you know, he'd like, let's play again. And he noticed that I was like, not trying my best. <laughs> He'd be like, you better play your best game or I'm going to kick your ass. So it was like, you know, so then I, you know, I tried, he noticed that I was sloughing because I didn't want to get my ass kicked. And then he would kick my ass for sloughing. <laughs> and then he would kick my ass if I beat him, you know, and this happened with every, he wanted to compete in everything. But if he, if I beat him, you know, like when we played basketball, I, I became a much better basketball player than, you know, he would beat me up. You know, it's like, so, and, he, and he would beat me up if I wouldn't play with him. So it was just like, it was this really rough, abusive, you know, relationship that really got worse after my dad died. Um, which also fed into my drinking and using. Um, and, uh, you know, with as far as forgiving myself for my dad, going back to your original question, my dad's, um, you know, I think it was my fault that my dad died. It took uh, five years of therapy, going through all the 12 steps. Um, I had the same therapist for five years who was also uh, a recovering alcoholic addict. And uh, just, uh, you know, really working the steps and, you know, kind of doing my, my nine step amends at my father's grave, you know, and just, uh, you know, I had to write this letter to him, you know, and just kind of, you know, say, dad, I'm sorry for the things, you know, that I may have done when you were alive that, you know, you know, when I was disrespectful, you know, <laughs> and you told me to like, maybe wash the dishes and I didn't do the dishes right then or whatever, all those kind of things. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, and I, in the letter, I'm like, you know, I know it wasn't my fault. I know, you know, if we could do that night over, you know, none of us would want this to happen. And I know that, you know, it, you know, things happen and, you know, I didn't push you off that ledge, you know, you know, you tripped, you fell as it is what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, I just kind of made peace with that. And, you know, I, I left that letter there by my dad's gravesite. you know, he's buried in West Virginia. And, uh, you know, after that, I just felt free and I just, um, you know, I know, you know, at, now as an adult that, you know, it wasn't my fault. It's just a horrible, tragic thing. You know, horrible, tragic things happen all the time. I mean, look at the world today. <laughs> There's horrible, tragic stuff. It seems like almost nonstop with this pandemic and everything else and yeah, the political landscape. Huh? But uh, I think things are looking up, I think, today on Inauguration Day. So sorry if I'm plugging my political preference here. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see, we'll, see, we'll, we'll see. We'll see at the end of four years. Yeah. If nothing's changed, then we we will all know that that both parties are the enemy of the people. So, um, yeah, that's true. And we'll still all probably be in where our <laughs> in the current position we're in, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so another another question that I have, and it's this is a topic that is pretty, I would say, inflammatory through the rooms and in in the uh, recovery spaces online and groups and stuff like that. But it seems like you, you relapsed quite a few times until you, you actually got it. I did too. It, you know, I, I probably 30, 40, 40 attempts before, you know, it actually stuck and, and, you know, I was able to move beyond, uh, any, any amount of time, um, from the substance that I, I, you know, couldn't fuck with anymore. And that for me, that was meth. Meth was the one that took me down every single time that I tried, no matter how many different times I tried to do it. And I tried a million different ways to, to, to do it. And it just the same thing every time. Yeah. So. They say relapse is not a part of recovery and you get, you get scolded and, and you get, uh, almost, almost the same that you get online today. If you, if you were talked about Trump, uh, and, and supporting him, if <laughs> yeah. you, if you say that relapse is a part of recovery in the rooms or in these groups, the same kind of attacking happens to you. So, I mean, I, how do you, how do you not say that it isn't because it's almost, I mean, how do you feel about that? Um, you know, I'm glad that you bring that up because it really, I think, um, you know, when I first heard, um, I think I heard it in an NA meeting, they said relapse is a part of recovery, I think is what I heard them say. 
And uh, I was like, well, wait, you're either relapsed or you recovered, you know, so I was kind of confused. But then, like, you know, one of the old timers kind of explained it. it was like, you know, not everybody gets sober the first time. You know, some people have relapses or slips or whatever, but then they get back in here. Hopefully, you know, some of them don't, you know. And I was like, OK, I guess that makes sense. But for me personally, I, I feel like, you know, we shouldn't say it. I mean, relapse happens and, it, it, you know, it could be a part of your story. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think if you're in recovery, then you're obviously not in a relapse. So I don't really like the phrase relapse as a part of recovery. I mean, it can be a part of your story, but if you're in recovery, you're not going to relapse anymore. If you've really surrendered and you're really working all the steps, then, uh, yeah. you know, the obsession will be lifted and you, you'll stay on the right path. Hopefully, you know, for the rest of your life. Yeah. I, you know, I, but I, a relapse can happen. You hear about people having 30 years of relapsing, so it happens. It can happen. Yeah, I I don't I don't say that it's a part of recovery. I say it's a part of the process, because recovery is a process, and it's yeah. different for it's different for everybody, you know. And you know, some people yeah. choose to use the twelve steps. Um, I started there, but I, I don't, I'm not there anymore. Um, I do my program a little bit differently. I'm I'm I absolutely cannot touch methamphetamines. Uh, I don't touch opiates anymore. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate for, uh, marijuana. I think that it's a medicine and if used in the proper way, like in microdosing or, or microdosing psilocybin, uh, I think that there's, there's, there's benefits to it and I've done it myself and there is no high to it. It's just all of the benefits without the, without the high. And so I've never really, I don't knock anybody for, whatever it is, whatever road that they choose to go down. I mean, whatever works for you. If, if you're living a happy, healthy, productive life and, and you're microdosing, uh, psilocybin or you're microdosing THC and whatever it is that you're doing, you're not doing it with the, with the intention of getting high. I think that you can do whatever you want. Now that's not for everybody. And I wouldn't go into, yeah. and I, and I wouldn't go into a, a, like, um, uh, like I, I did a, uh, uh, I, I did a speaker, a speech over at, uh, the other side Academy and it didn't have none of that, you know, cause these are, these are people that are fresh in, into, you know, from not using. And I don't want, I didn't want to give them that like hope that, Oh, I, I can use, you know what I mean? It's no, that's not what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That's not what I'm saying. And so I, I just, I keep it out of my story a lot. Um, be, yeah. be, just because, I mean, people have different, different thoughts about it. And, uh, but I, I'm of the, 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 the thought process that whatever it takes, uh, you know, as long as you're happy, healthy, you're not hurting yourself, you're not hurting anybody else and you're progressing and, 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 and living a, uh, a productive life. You know, do, do, do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I know some people who um, started out in the 12 step program and, you know, kind of, you know, stopped doing everything. And, uh, you know, that, but uh, for them, you know, one of my friends, he was, you know, big time into meth. Um, and, you know, after 15 years sober off everything, he decided he could have a beer every once in a while. And this has been five years and he has a beer every once in a while, like maybe once a week, you know, and it's like, wow, he can do that. You know, I know for me, if I have one beer, I'm going to be off to the dope bands because once I have one beer, you know, the little buzz gets kicked in there and I'm like, ah, the beer is nice, but you know what will make this better. So for me, I just can't even have one drop of anything like the micro dosing that scares me. I mean, I think it, I know other people that it can work for, you know, like, but for me, I'm just, I, I'm not, I don't want to play Russian roulette anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I know, I don't think it would, maybe it would, but I'm not going to, I'm not, it's my worth, my life is not worth risking it again. You know? I got yeah, a yeah. wife and three kids that need me. And that's a big part of my motivation to stay sober is, you know, um, I didn't mention this in my story, but when I finally hit my last bottom, you know, my sponsor, you know, he took me to the funeral of a friend of his who had about 15 years sober, relapsed and died a week later from an overdose. And he took me to this guy, Dale's funeral. And he said, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I, that could be any one of us, you know? And then he took me back to my rehab and he's like, I want you to walk around that room while all the other guys in there was a guy's rehab. And he's like, you see all those guys walking around there? He's like, take a look at all of them. He's like, all you guys are just a bunch of dead men walking. And he proceeded to sit me down and he's like, you know what? you can keep drinking and using and you can die from this disease and your wife will be sad, but eventually she'll move on. Mm -hmm. You know, she'll find a new man to be her husband and he'll be the father to your children. And that just put a little fire in me. I was like, no, you know, I'm not going to do the same thing to my kids that happened with my dad. You know, I know what it's like to grow up without a dad. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ever since then, I'm like, the, the, uh, 
that's not going to happen to me and my kids, you know? And I just, I was like, after that, I was like, I'm really going to work all these 12 steps. And I just made a deal with myself. I'm like, I mean, I'm with God. I'm like, God, I'm going to do all these 12 steps. But if after I do the 12 step, if I still want to have a drink or drug, I might do it then. But first I'm going to get through these 12 steps all the way through this time. And uh, lo and behold, you know, I got, you know, before I was even actually halfway done, by the time I got to the eighth or ninth step, I didn't want to drink and use ever again. But uh, that was kind of the, the thing that really helped me kind of surrender and really get to it was that, that talk he had with me, you know, kind of the catalyst to, yeah, to get the, me going in the right direction and stay on the path. Yeah. The old surrender to win uh, analogy, which for me, I'm a sport, yeah. I'm, 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 I was a team sports guy. And so it, I, it didn't make sense to me. I was surrender to win. What, how do you do that? Yeah. How, how does that work? And, you know, I, I fought it for a long time and then, you know, finally it just sort of made sense. And I'm like, Oh, that's what they yeah. meant. That's what they meant. <laughs> yeah. We have all these ironic cliche sayings in AA that kind of don't really maybe apply to other parts of life. Yeah. I'm, as a, as an athlete, you know, surrender to win didn't make sense to me either. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean surrender? There's no surrender. You, you go to your last time, man, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Winner, so go home. Yeah, so, so let's, let's go back to where we, uh, where, where we, uh, pivoted there. Um, so you, you gained some weight, 250 pounds you were, and you decided you want to start exercising and, and not, you know, fall victim to what a lot of people do when they stop using is they, they, you know, they substitute something else, you know, food, uh, cigarettes, coffee, you know, you see a lot of that in the, uh, in the meetings, you know, sometimes meetings for yeah. people, they substitute that, which isn't a bad thing. Um, but it, it is when you are using it to not deal with what you need to deal with, which is the things that are the behaviors, which actually, you know, go along with, with, uh, using and, and being an addict and, and all the lying and, and, you know, I don't know how, how much you got into it, but for me, it was lying, cheating, stealing, yeah. uh, manipulating everything that I could do, um, to feel good. Exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, well, it gets to the point where it's just like second nature. And, and you, and for me, I would, I would lie about the dumbest stuff, stuff I didn't even need to lie about. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's like, well, the, tr- the truth wouldn't have got you in trouble, but why did you have to lie about what, what are you lying about? And so that behavior for me just yeah. would just, I don't know, it snowball into, reasons mm-hmm. for me to feel bad about myself to like, well, shit, I might as well go use anyways. I would always do things to sabotage myself to mm-hmm. have a reason to go get high and, or whether yeah. it was yeah. start a fight with my, with the current person that I was with so I could leave the house. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm doing the right I thing. All the time, man. I did that all the time. Oh my God. I'm doing the shit. right thing. I'm leaving knowing that I started the fight so I could leave so I could go get high. Oh, God, I should have mentioned that. I did that all the time. I was such an a-hole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, but that behavior, that's a learned behavior. That's what we do. We, we do those mm-hmm. things because that's what our addiction brings us to. And then you have all, you have that behavior that is just like a long line in a wake of, of behavior. And, you know, after 13 years, that's what you do. I mean, and it's like second nature, everything, everything about what you're doing is second nature because it's become a habit. It's become, it's become behavior that's ingrained in your DNA now. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got 13 and a half years of doing this two weeks of a rehab. 90 days of a rehab that doesn't work. You know what I mean? Rehabs are good to plant seeds, but they're Mm -hmm. not, they don't work. The funding model doesn't work because nobody knows when, you know what I mean? Is it going to be 90 days? Is it going to be a year? Is it going to be two years that it takes for you to finally get that, you know? And, and the rehabs, like I said, they were great for, they were great for planting seeds, but the behavior and the hard work come from when you really decide to get sober for the right reason, stop using the, the behaviors and the manipulations and all the other things that you learned how to do to kind of make you feel better about yourself, from, you know, going through this, when you finally give it up and you finally start looking at yourself and you finally start realizing that no matter where I go, here I am. 
You know, the problem, yeah. the problem that I keep pointing out over there. Well, shit, I got three pointing back at me over here. There's another one, you know, one there, three back here. Um, you know, when you start really thinking about that and now those terms is when you truly start to be able to, to heal and understand. And it doesn't stop there. It's just, okay, now I see what I'm doing and I, and I'm able to look at it and, and not escape from it because who is you're trying to escape? You're trying to escape from yourself and your own behavior. You know, when you go and look into, you know, whatever it else is you're doing, oh, porn, oh, I'm going to go have, sleep with this person and not, be, you know what I mean? It feels good. It, you know, anything that feels good, I'm, I'm all about it. And, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, when, when, when you, when you really get real about it and, and, and you start looking at yourself, then you can start pinpointing some of the certain things that you're doing. For me, I had anger issues big time. And mm -hmm. to the point where like, even now my dog is affected because when my octaves start raising, my dog jams, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it, and it's like, yeah. Oh, whoa, you know what I mean? Cause I, I mean, at some, I mean, I was kind of a rageaholic too, you know, yeah. for, for no reason. And it was like, Oh, well, I'm not using, well, you're not dealing with you either, you know? So where's it going to go? It's got to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of original too. I can relate with a lot of everything what you just said. You know, all these negative habits we develop to support our our one habit. You know, and the lying. You can become addicted to lying when you're out there drinking and using. You know, but until you really get to the root of the problem, which is you and your thinking. Because mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just did all the stuff you just mentioned, and uh, <laughs> I think I had some pets that might have been afraid of me too. But not now. Now my now my cats are pretty chill, and uh, I mean, you know, I've been on my mood stabilizers for twelve years. You know, yeah. almost thirteen and a half years. I went up on meds once in sobriety for a little bit. But, um, you know, and I didn't relapse that one last time. Thank God. That's yeah. That's another. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing, man. Uh, your story is an inspiration. So where did the, where did the, the triathlete, the, uh, you know, the ultra marathons and, and all the running come in because I can't stand running. I, I need, yeah. I need to lose weight. You know what I mean? The COVID got me, you know, uh, 35 pounds. Yeah. I'm, you know, and I'm like, I, just to think about it is like, oh my god, I hate, I, I just don't like it. I'm not one of those well, people that enjoys exercise. That's kind of what got me into the triathlons. So actually, you know, as a high school kid and a, and a college kid, you know, I played basketball and football, and all through college, I'd go play ball for two to four hours after class every day, and then I'd go home and party. Um, and even after college, I played basketball up until I was about 35. Um, I kind of wrecked both my knees and had two uh, ACL reconstructions at age 22 and 27, which uh, which led me to Vicodin, which was wonderful um, for an addict. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, going back to, um, I think, you know, for exercise, um, it, you know, you got to find an exercise you like to do. It doesn't have to be running. I mean, for me, like on days I don't want to run, I go swim or I go bike or I do yoga or, I, you know, I do some weights and resistance training. Um, I do other things. I used to play a lot more racquetball, although right now it's been hard because everything's shut down. Um, you know, there's all kinds of other activities you can do. I mean, maybe you're into Tai Chi, martial arts. There's so many different ways to exercise out there. Um, so just you got to find something you like and, you know, try to stick with it. Um, and the other thing about running that I always like to say to people who say they hate running is, you know, me and some, I have some of my friends that are ultra runners. They run 100 mile races like me and they wear these shirts that say running sucks, which makes no sense. It's like, how are you going to go run 100 miles and wear a shirt that says running sucks? And the thing about running is like the first one to two miles kind of do suck because your body is like kind of mad at you. Like, it's like, what are you doing? You know, everything's <laughs> tight, you know, and it's like, why are we doing this? You know, we've been, you know, like the law of inertia, you know, a body at rest likes to stay at rest, you know, whereas, you know, but it also says the body in motion likes to stay in motion. So if you push past that first mile or two, you know, which usually for depending on your pace, you know, let's say it takes 10 or 20 minutes, whatever to get through one or two miles. If you really get past that spot, you'll notice your body is like your body surrenders and it's like, Oh, okay, this is what we're doing now. And you fall into a pace and you're warmed up now. Cause you know, I mean, the other thing is just to do a warm up before you go run. And that'll really help. You know, if you can get past that first mile or two, I think most people who don't like running. They just think about that, how that first one to two miles feels when they're not warmed up yet. But if you can get past that and then you go for, you know, three or four or five miles, you might enjoy a mile three, four and five, you know, depending on how far you want to run. Uh, so that, that's my advice to people who say they hate running is get past that first mile or two and, you know, just find a slow, comfortable pace. Get past that first mile or two, let your body warm up and then say, I feel a mile three, four or five or however, you know, if you want to go further, sure. But I'm, I'm trying to keep it chill for people who say they don't like running <laughs> as far as the distances go. 
Yeah. So, and, and so, and here's another one. There's another question for you. Um, what's mile, what's mile 60 like? What's mile, what's mile 98 like when you're doing a hundred mile race? I mean, is it, are you thrashed? Are your feet just blistered? I mean, you know, I've watched that, uh, Icarus. Have you watched that movie? No, but I should check it out. <laughs> yeah. The one, the one about the, 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 uh, the, the bikers and, or the bi- cyclists and, you know, they're thrashed after they do the tour de France. Um, you know, and I, I know the, the guys that do the ultra, the ultra marathons. I mean, I'm, I'm a, uh, Joe Rogan fan. So he had, uh, a couple of guys on there that did the, uh, the Mojave. Whatever, whatever it was, two forty, two forty, yeah, and it's like David Goggins and some of the other guys that are there. Yeah, so I mean, do you are, are those your people you look up to and you and you want to do that, or are you are you cool with just a hundred? Um, those are people that I look up to and I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of you know I've, I've channeled my addictive personality into you know sports and fitness. Um, and, you know, you asked the question about the 100 miles of runs. You know, I've done seven of them successfully. I've started 11 of them. So four of them I didn't finish. So obviously mile, well, let's see, mile 60 at one of them really sucked. And mile 70 and 80 at another one sucked. And there was one other one somewhere between mile 60 and 90 I ended up dropping. Uh, so, you know, the first, I don't know, I always feel like the first 20 miles, I just kind of cruise. Um, second 20 miles, I start to get a little tired. Um, you know, and then, uh, depending on the race there, I mean, there was one race where I did, it was really hot and you know, by mile 40, I felt like a zombie cause, uh, I didn't wear a hat. I learned from that race to wear a hat from now on because <laughs> you got a protector. I, I like to let the, you know, I like to tan my bald head, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I learned after that race that I need to always wear a hat, especially if it's going to be warm. Um, cause the heat just drained me and I ended up kind of zombie walking the next 20 miles before I ended up dropping. Um, but, uh, you know, and these ultra marathons are like, they're like life, you know, it's like a roller coaster. you know, you have your highs and your lows, your ups and your downs. I've had some of these hundred mile races where the last 10 miles were my fastest 10 miles. Cause I just like got the second wind and you know, yeah, my feet were a little sore. My legs were a little sore, but I knew I was only 10 miles from the finish line. And you know, my mind's like, you've already done 90. What's 10 more, you know? And so if I'm just like <laughs> on the runner side, they could, there's only 10 more to go. I've almost got this sucker, you know? Yeah. But then there's been other ones where I'm like from mile 80 to a hundred, I'm like, feel like I'm crawling. I'm like, I'm going to get there, but Ah, this is taking forever, you know, because like, it's just, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a, to do these kind of things. It's really like 99% mental. Um, and you just got to get your head in a good place. You got to want it. Um, and you kind of got to like, I mean, some I've heard of uh, Chris McCormick. He's an Ironman world champion. He says, you got to embrace the suck. Sometimes you got to embrace the suck. Um, but sometimes you got to just focus on anything but the suck, you know, like, yeah, you're going to feel some pain. You're going to get some blisters sometimes. Not if you wear, I hate to plug this, but I love dry max socks. I'm not even a sponsor for them, but dry max running socks. Since I've worn dry max sock running socks, I switched to them five years ago. I've never gotten a blister since then. So, and I, I they don't pay me. <laughs> they should, <laughs> um, but they're great. So, you know, and you got to have the right shoes and socks that helps. I mean, but, I, I know another guy, Wayne Kurtz. This guy does like ultra triathlons. He did 30 Ironmans in 30 days. He's done all kinds of crazy stuff. And he, part of his training, it's he'll go out and run with no socks on and purposely get blisters. He'll do a 20 mile run. Then the next day he'll run again and he calls it blister training, just getting used to running with having tons of blisters on your feet. I'm like, nah, that's not for me. I'll stick with my dry max socks. <laughs> so. How much preparation goes into it uh, pre pre race? I mean, uh, you, you got to be hydrated. I would imagine you've got to be, you know, be pretty. Uh, you know, like, what's your what's your food regimen like for the week up up to the race? Do you Are do we any- talking hundred mile run? Yeah, Ironman like a- triathlon or well, well, what's what's the hardest one that you that you think that's the most physically enduring? Uh, hundred mile runs are way harder than Ironman. Ironman is like, you know, like little boy scouts compared to like the big Eagle scouts, you know, or whatever. I don't know how to say it's not offending certain groups of people, but yeah, yeah. you compare a hundred mile run is like way up here. You know, Ironman's way easier. Yeah. <laughs> Cause Ironman time limit 17 hours, you know, whereas hundred mile runs, usually it's 30 to 36 hours. And you're just pounding on your legs for 100 miles, so, you know, whereas in Ironman, you're swimming for 2.4 miles, then you're on a bike, so you're sitting down for 112 miles, which, which for me is about six hours, and then you're running only 26, you know, mile marathon. 
you're not running for a full hundred miles where you're just on your feet the whole time. You know? mm-hmm. So in a hundred mile, your legs just get thrashed so much more, you know, by the end your quads, you're like, ah, and your feet are really sore and swollen up. Usually my feet are swollen for almost a week after running a hundred mile run, you know, just, it looks like my ankles wow. have been sprained. And you can't like normally I have really veiny to, you know, you can see all the veins in my feet, but for the week afterwards, my feet just look fat. You can't see any of the veins. So. Awesome, man. That's, that's, well, that's, that's definitely inspiring, man. You're an inspiration, uh, you know, a for, for, you know, what you've gone through and, and coming out the other side, uh, intact. Uh, that's, that's an accomplishment, especially, you know, a lot of us yeah. uh, don't, don't make it. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the drugs of choice too. You know, a lot of, for me, meth, it wasn't like heroin, you know, when heroin, you just, a lot of times, you know, people just go back to what they were doing right before they stopped. And, you know, that was it. That's all it takes. You know, your body doesn't have that uh, tolerance anymore. And there you go. Um, There's there's one question I want to know because I I know a little bit of history about the uh, about West Virginia, um, that okay. the Battle of Blair Mountain. You remember that? Uh-oh. Did you ever hear about uh, that? Maybe my history is not that good. Yeah. So the bat the <laughs> battle and John Brown's raid. <laughs> so do you know you know where Blair Mountain is? No, honestly, I don't. I grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia. So okay. It's like so yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess uh, the Blair Mountain, the Battle of Blair Mountain, was back when the West Virginia coal miners were uh, uh, fighting the the corporation uh, sure. that the coal corp, the the mining corporation, which owned all the towns, it owned the town, it owned the store, it owned the homes that the people were uh, were were living in, and they were getting paid in scrip, which wasn't good for anything other than that little. Sp- place where they were so i mean they were literally oh, wow. they were literally um locked into this area because they couldn't go anywhere i mean your the money's only yeah. good there and yeah. so at some point they rose up and decided they wanted to um you know basically fight back and that was the bloodiest battle on u.s soil since the uh civil war wow. and that's where the term rednecks came from because the coal miners mm-hmm. Uh, wore red scarves around their necks to, so people would know who they were. And so a lot wow. of people think that redneck is, it has, is a, is a, you know, a, a, it's a derogatory term. A lot of people don't realize where the, where the actual term came from. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I thought rednecks was like, cause really white people just get their neck all sunburned or something. <laughs> or, 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 or somebody in high school slapping you in the back of your neck. Oh, yeah. I'm a high school teacher. Yeah, a couple years ago, that's all these guys were doing. It was like, that's a neck. These kids were slapping each other so hard on the back of their neck all the time. I'm like, man, I'm so glad I'm not these kids' ages. I would have killed somebody if they did that to me. <laughs> so are you, uh, are you dealing with the, uh, uh, in school, uh, the, what are they calling that distance learning yeah we're all virtual we've been all virtual since march of last year um actually last year i was on a one-year leave um you know working on my book and you know some other things um and so i i just started back in august and uh you know luckily i'm kind of tech savvy so it was pretty easy for me to pick up but uh the kids are not engaged man it's like across the nation um like they're doing less homework. And the crazy thing is, is like the hours are less. Like when we're at school, we're there from eight to three, but with this distance learning schedule, they only have to be logged in from nine to two. So they have like two less hours to be engaged. And yet some of them just won't even turn on their screen you know, or log into the class. And it's like, most of them won't turn on their screen. You just see their little profile. They're all shy and it's just trying to get engagement and, and participation is really challenging across the whole nation. Like just, you know, so are you worried? Uh, well, they're going to basically, you know, kind of look at, you know, you know, the last year and this year, probably the next few years. And like as far as test scores go, they're probably going to take them with a grain of salt and, you know, probably maybe even modify the tests. Um, but the numbers aren't going to be, you know, what they normally are um, as far as, you know, assessing and kind of showing what the students are learning in terms of mastering standards and whatnot. I know they're even doing some sort of forgiveness with waiving the SATs and stuff. It's it's gonna it's gonna take a while to bounce back from this, and it's really probably not gonna start happening until we're back in the regular classroom again, which at this point doesn't look like it's gonna happen until next year. I mean, it, it seems like it's gonna go. Remember, everybody seems like we're gonna be virtual to the end of this academic year for sure, and some people think we might even be starting virtual next year. But I think you know it really depends on how the vaccine rolls out. So. 
So you think it's more helpful or hurtful? Um, well, for me, I love working from home, so I enjoy it. But for the students, yeah, it's, it's more hurtful. These guys need to be in a classroom where they can interact with their peer and do collaborative learning and just uh, be more accountable, um, you know. Because when they're at home on their computer, we have no idea if they have their phone in their hand and they're like checking their Snapchat or whatever else they might be doing. But in the classroom, you can clearly see if their phone is in their hand or not. And you can kind of you know address that if that's an issue, which it often is. But at least you know what's going on at home. You have no idea, especially if they don't have their camera on, what they're doing, you know. Yeah, I, I, they could I, be shooting up back there. Who knows? <laughs> well, ho- hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, Those kids probably aren't even logging into the Zoom session. <laughs> I would assume. Yeah, I think my 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 worry is is that some some of these students, you know, uh, probably the only escape they got from whatever. Uh, torment they were going through at home if they have an abusive uh, household that they're that they're in, you know, be it you know the, they're being abused or or you know maybe their mom or or some other abuse is happening inside. The only relief that they had was school, you know, yeah. and, and the reprieve that they would get from that situation would be school, and that's not happening. So I don't know, man. I I, I hope that uh, I I really I really hope that things start to, to normal out here at some point because you know we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot to to clean up uh when this whole thing is said and done yeah hopefully people will be able to see the gratitude in the situation when when and if things finally do turn return back to you know more of what that normal hopefully we'll get back to the norm some kind of normal like we were used to you know yeah where we don't have to wear masks and where we can actually be within six feet of each other and be back in the classroom and you know hopefully get a lot of the things back that we used to have. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we're at an hour. So why don't you go ahead? I'm going to show everybody where they can find you as you're saying, like you say on the bottom, if you want to check out uh, Tim's book, a story of a bipolar triathlete, uh, it's available in ebook paperback and audio book. You can find it at ultra Tim uh, you can follow Tim, uh, Ultra Tim Davis one on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram, which is Tim underscore or try at tripolar under slash underscore Tim on Instagram. And like I said, check out his book. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and check that out. You got it on, on uh, audio book. So that's the only way that I like to <laughs> read. Yeah, me too, actually. I like audio. So yeah, if, if I missed anything, go ahead and uh, let everybody know where they can find you. Um, other, other than that. Uh, no, you covered it all. Thank you so much, Sean. Yeah. Thanks yeah. For having me. Yeah. No problem. Thanks for, uh, spreading, spreading some, uh, knowledge and, uh, a little bit of your hope and wisdom and, and, uh, I appreciate it. And hopefully the listeners appreciate it too. And, uh, hang out for one second, uh, as I, Go ahead and bring us out of here. Anybody else that's watching, thank you for uh, checking this out. You can find all of the information in the description below. All of the links uh, that you didn't see will be there as well for my show as well as where to find Tim. And until next time, uh, we'll catch you guys later. Let's go ahead and do this. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.